Hello and welcome to Beth Takoon and this series called Spiritual Seasons where we are exploring the Torah portions in the light of the yearly calendar and God's overall pattern of salvation. This week we are in Parsha Beha Alokha, Numbers 8 through 12. This portion has a tipping point in the middle of it where the narrative changes abruptly. We see here the first part of Numbers end and the second part of Numbers begin. The first part of the book of Bamidbar details how Israel is formed into an organized and empowered army while camped at the base of Mount Sinai. In the second part, this newly formed army begins to move through the world, heading toward the promised land and stumbling from the very beginning. Beha Aloha means when you rise up or when you raise up. It refers to the first topic, which is clarification about how to light the menorah. Apparently, the text is saying that Aaron is to face the six side. Uh, he's to take those six side lamps and face them toward the middle lamp of the menorah. Um, and here, that middle lamp is called the face of the menorah. So this passage also is apparently the command um, to Aaron to actually go ahead and light the menorah or maybe just to arrange the lamps uh, because it does say there, and Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, the next topic is the elevation of the rest of the Levites who are not priests, the Kohathites, Gershonites, and Merorites. Previously, God had explained their areas of service to them, but they hadn't yet been elevated to service so that they could begin their work. And there was no need for them to begin their work because they were not on the move yet, right? Remember these groups who are not priests, but are Levites, are tasked with transporting the ark. So if they're not moving yet, they don't need to be elevated. But in this portion, they are cleansed and offered as a wave offering to the Lord, which is unusual because he took the firstborn of Israel for himself on the day that he struck the firstborn in Egypt. So remember that he takes all of the firstborn of Israel, but in place of the 12 tribes, the firstborn, he takes the entire tribe of Levi as the firstborn. And, um, and so here um, we actually see that happening and they're waved, they're offered. It's a first first fruits offering to the Lord, and they're waved before the Lord. So it's kind of a momentous thing that's happening. But here now, these Levites can begin their service, and they need to because they're about to set out from Mount Sinai. So next comes the celebration of the first Passover outside of Egypt, and the institution of the second Passover, Pesach Sheni, right, in the second month, for those who are not able to participate in the Passover in the first month. So after that, we have a description of how the people followed the cloud while in the wilderness. They followed the command of the Lord to move and to stop. Next is the command to make silver trumpets for summoning the congregation and for setting out from camp in an orderly way. The trumpets are also to be used when going to war and on the Moedim. God says the purpose of the trumpets is so that they will be remembered before him. So that's a kind of humbling thing for them. It's not that God needs to remember 
but it's that they need to remember that he is the source of their salvation. When they go to war, blow those trumpets. And, you, and they're reminding themselves more than they are God that, um, that he is the source of their ultimate salvation. So at this point, the people finally do set out from Sinai. And it's on the, the 20th day of the second month. So the 20th of ER, um, they set out from Mount Sinai toward the promised land. So this section of the text is where we find the two unusual verses that are bound on each side of the two verses by the inverted letter nuns, one before and one after the two verses. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Well, right away there's trouble. Uh, the people complain and the Lord gets angry such that the fire, that fire consumes parts of the outskirts of the camp. They complain again even after that episode, that they want meat. They miss the foods that they ate in Egypt. Moses doesn't know what to do with them and says to God that they're too much for him to handle, right? They're standing in the doorways of their tents, just murmuring and crying. God decides to uh, elevate 70 elders to help um, Moses. And so the 70 come to the tabernacle. God takes from some of the spirit anointing on Moses and puts it on them, except there's only 68. Two of them stayed behind in the camp. And while all the 68 begin to prophesy when the spirit is put on them, the two out in the camp also begin to prophesy. And so there's that story of Eldad and Medad. And that the story is also connected to God sending quail a second time. Remember, they already had quail one time, uh, but this is a second time. But they're a little older now, and it's different. And so as they begin to gorge themselves on the, on the quail, God also sends a plague. And there are many who die, and it says the ones who had the craving died. So lastly, in chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron, Aaron speak against Moses because of his wife, his Cushite wife. Miriam is struck with leprosy and is put outside the camp for seven days, after which she was apparently healed so that she could be brought back into the camp. So there's a lot going on in this portion. We'll have time to talk about a couple of those topics in a little bit more detail, but First, let's do some work to place Beha Alokha in the larger movements in the calendar and in the flow of the Torah portions. And so in doing that, I want to focus on two ideas. One, how we are to respond to being elevated. And two, the special challenge of the middle of a journey. There's um, something that happens, uh, maybe not exactly at the middle of a journey, but when we realize where we've come to, what it's like here, how far we have to go, there's a special challenge there. And so we'll talk about that too. So let's start with how we respond to being elevated. How we respond to being put maybe in a position of authority, just raised up, um, empowered in some way. 
so that our head is a little bit higher than it was before. How do we respond in that moment? So first of all, we've been talking about elevation now for quite some time, both in the flow of the portions and in the calendar. The second half of Leviticus is giving us a picture of holiness, like the climbing of a holiness mountain. It helps us see how we're falling short, and it also inspires us and informs us about what the life of holiness is to look like. So in a way, it's like we're being given a plan of holiness, a blueprint of holiness, if you will, in the second half of Leviticus. Well, blueprints are good and necessary and even fascinating to look at, at least for a little while. But blueprints aren't the house. As the book of Bamidbar starts, we begin to see the building of the house according to the Leviticus blueprint. It starts with a census, the book of Bamidbar does, and some physical changes in the nation, bringing order to chaos, right? The arrangement of the camp. And so the lifting up in the physical realm begins, right? We've had a lot of planning, a lot of picturing, educating even for holiness. But at a certain point, you've got to start doing it. You've got to start making the house. So last week's portion Naso means to elevate, to lift up. We saw, you know, even more of the manifesting of this um, this lifting up to a holier place. Um, more of it manifesting in the concrete realm in Naso. So, for example, Israel puts the unclean out of the camp in that portion. We also saw the people bringing their tabernacle inauguration offerings uh, through the 12 princes of the tribes. So all of these are the beginnings of holiness manifesting in the people as preparations for the next stage, which is the journey to the promised land. Um, So in the calendar, we've also been paralleling Israel. We arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai at Shavuot, you know, which we just recently celebrated. And what we specially remember at Shavuot is the receiving of the Torah, once again, as Israel did uh, at Mount Sinai. And so at this time of year, we're also being raised to a higher level, right? We're seeing Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai in the Torah portions, all these different things happening, this manifesting that's starting to happen, real physical changes happening in them, And we come to Shavuot in the calendar, which puts us in a similar place. So Shavuot is a time the sages liken to a bar or bat mitzvah, a mile marker that says, okay, you're growing up. You're taking on more responsibility. Let this day be a line in the sand for you. Your childhood is behind you now. And we now start out into a new wilderness journey, as Israel does in this portion. So as if to emphasize this process of God lifting us up and empowering us and commissioning us, we have two portions in a row named for the idea of elevation. Not so about lifting the head uh, for the census. The Gershonites were counted at the beginning of that portion. And Beha'alokha, which maybe you can hear the root of Aliyah going up uh, there in that word. And it means again, in your raising up, talking about the lighting of the menorah or the setting up of the menorah flames, the wicks. 
the elevation here in the first half of this portion is it's more than just the setting up of the menorah. We see here the actual installation of the non-priest Levites for service in the beginning of their service. And we also see here the first time the people actually do a Seder in remembrance of the coming out of Egypt. So the very first Passover was the actual experience of coming out of Egypt, right? They had to do it. And it's here in the second year that they do their very first seders as free people looking back on Egypt, looking back on their slavery. So again, they're being raised up to a new level. The two verses separated by the inverted nuns come very near to marking the actual summit, the soaring high point describing how Moses would ask God to go out to protect Israel and come back in to his resting place with his bride. These are very lofty couple of verses there. You can always almost think about them as having come to the top. So there's not a lot of space to move around at the top of a mountain, and you can't stay there for very long. It's exhilarating, but the summit of the mountain is not where most life happens. Summits are spiritual places with a lot of light. Valleys are physical places with a lot of growth and and a lot of shade. So let me repeat that. Summits are spiritual places with a lot of light, but not a lot of physical growth. Valleys are physical places with less light and a lot of growth. And so this is something to keep in mind as we're reading in in the Bible. If an event happens at a high place, well, that's a very spiritual place that that's happening. So just keep that in mind. If it happens in a valley, in a plain, that's a low place, and that's a more physical place. So it's also a pattern that we've looked at in the year with the light of summer versus the darkness and the physical growth of the winter. So we're not made to live at the summit, but God has put into us the thrill of being up there for a short time. We're made to, uh, rather than being made to live up there in that tiny place, we're made to internalize that perspective from above and descend with it, to bring that vision down with us. Going down is inevitable, and um, we're not given long up there. We must begin to descend quickly, right? Just can't live up there. You've got to go down. Well, there are two ways to go down the mountain, either carefully watching each step or casually, which can easily lead to stumbling and falling. And so we come to the second half of Parsha Becha Aloha. Israel stumbles and rolls and tumbles and rolls again. You, you know, maybe you can remember what it's like to roll down a hill, and when you get going sometimes, you're, you're rolling, right? You're not going to stop until you get to the bottom. And we'll see in the coming portions that the rolling keeps going. The people set out from Sinai and grumble, and the dying begins. Then they want meat, and the dying continues. Then Miriam and Aaron, Aaron speak against Moses, and the entire nation's progress toward Canaan is delayed. 
for seven days because of that little thing that they did with their tongue, with their tongues, just that little whatever it was, that speech delaying the whole nation of millions for seven days in a desert. Well, we also see a stumble of sorts in the half Torah reading in Zechariah. Well, at least it's the appearance of a stumble. We read there of how Joshua, the high priest, and so this is not Joshua from the book of Joshua. This is a high priest later named Joshua. And in a vision given to Zechariah, Joshua, the high priest, is brought to the heavenly court and brought before Satan, the accuser. And Joshua's clothing is filthy. Stained clothing is the result of stumbling, of sin. But God rebukes Satan and commands that clean clothing be given to Joshua. And of course, we know that Joshua, the high priest, is a picture of Yeshua, the same name there. The text in Zechariah even says that Joshua, the high priest, is a symbol of the branch that God will bring, or the sprout, the the zemach. Though Yeshua didn't stumble, he had the appearance of one who stumbled because he took the sins of the world upon himself. Yet God finds no fault in him and removes the filthy clothing and gives him pure clothing. So is it just inevitable that we descend the mountain by stumbling? Well, this is what usually happens, but I don't think it needs to be. There's another way to get back down to to the ground level, back down the mountain, and that's on our knees, humbling ourselves. So, keyword humble. Our first main point is that when God raises us up in some way, and that happens every year at this time, we will certainly come back down, but we can do that ourselves by humbling ourselves, by giving the glory to God, by being especially open to correction and suggestion and guidance in that moment of elevation, right? Being correctable. We can become a leader who listens deeply, right? Not just, I already know what I'm going to do. I already know what's supposed to happen. My advisors are talking. Let them talk. No, not like that. You listen because maybe you don't know what you're supposed to do. You know, we can become a teenager who doesn't think he knows everything, I distinctly remember that being a teenager and and just thinking somehow I knew everything all of a sudden. What is that sickness that comes over us? (laughs) We can, in humbling ourselves, we can be the bat mitzvah girl who seeks out wise counsel and follows it. This is how we come back down off the mountain safely. So let me challenge you now in this part of the calendar to cultivate humility and speak it out with others, right? Speak it out so that you are lowering yourself down in their eyes. We've heard the sentiment many times that when you are raised up, beware of the fall that looms. Humble yourself. But this is exactly what God is speaking to us right now through Parsha Beha Aloha. This is the message of this moment, as he has raised you up, lower yourself down, 
Don't be like Israel, who suddenly judged Egypt to, you know, be better than what they were experiencing there in the wilderness. Freedom, somehow in the cloudiness of, of this whole process of God choosing them and raising them up and giving them the Torah and all of this, somehow they ended up deciding, oh, it'd be better if we were in Egypt a slave again, rather than being a free people in the wilderness. So the teen who is filled with pride is destined to fall badly. The teen who is filled with respect and humility, on the other hand, will grow into his elevated position with no shame. As we read these Torah portions where Israel struggles, as we approach the next milestone in the calendar, which is the three weeks of mourning, when God you know, kind of turns his back on us during the three weeks is one way that we can think of that. As we approach the dry summer in Israel, when the heavens and the earth are separated from each other, focus on what you don't know rather than what you think you know. Focus on knowing yourself as small and lowly. Focus on what others have that you don't, or talents maybe that they have, and praise them. You know, we're not looking at other people and saying, I wish I had that, but we're saying, I recognize that in you, and it's so much better than the way I can do that, and that's a wonderful thing. Focus on the idea that whatever talents you have come from God, and if he had given them to someone else, maybe they'd do a better job with them than you're doing. Focus on taking correction gracefully and thankfully. And let me add here that we should also focus now on being brave to stand up again when we fall. When we fall, there's a great gravity that springs up that makes us want to wallow there in that hole. But we have an encouragement here in Beha, Beha Aloha in this regard as we read about the second chances that, you know, we read about second chances with Pesach Sheni, the second opportunity to do Pesach, if a person was rendered unclean in Nisan and therefore unable to participate in the bringing of the lamb because ritual impurity prevents someone from bringing a sacrifice. So the generally accepted message of Pesach Sheni is that it's never too late. So you were defiled and you couldn't draw near to God. You fell in some way, or you were simply exposed to a dead body, for example. God says, okay, I see your desire to draw near. You get another chance, and he gives us many chances. So the second point I'd like to make here beyond what our focus should be as we are elevated, he lifts us up, we lower ourselves down. But beyond that point, um, is the point that a point about the middle of a journey being tough, and we need to be expecting to hit that wall of the middle and to power through step by step for israel they 've already been in the wilderness for a whole year. they made it through the year off of the inspiration and adrenaline of the exodus. But now they've been camping for a year in the desert and they're beginning to realize 
what this new life is about for them. I just went camping last weekend, and it was great. But, um, boy, a year and in a desert, you know, I'd be getting weary too if I were them. And it looks even more difficult moving forward, right? How, how is this going to work, right? What is out there on the horizon for us that we can't see? They were already attacked by Amalek on the way to Mount Sinai. And so it looks tough. And one thing I would say that if we're expecting the wall, we won't be too dejected when we run into it. Instead, when we find ourselves exhausted and not wanting to move, we say to ourselves, ah, well, I'm back at this point again. I know this point. And I know that God builds this point into his progression for his reasons. And we press in with the Lord's help. We all know what it's like to feel dejected and exhausted as the new normal begins to materialize and the old life is still fresh in the rearview mirror. And it suddenly looks so great what we left. You know, we forget about the bad parts. We just remember, for some reason, the good parts of what we left behind. That's all fresh in our minds, and we say, oh, now I know what this new life is like. Wow. Uh, Wow. (laughs) You know, Um, if you've been blessed to have a five-day work week or a five-day school week, you know that when you come to Wednesday, it just feels like you've already come so far, but you look ahead and you see that you still have a long way to go before you can rest again. Wednesday is called hump day, or some say slump day, because we can deflate and actually um, accomplish very little on Wednesdays. If you look online, you'll actually see articles that describe how to make sure that you're productive on Wednesday, because it's just kind of the nature of Wednesday that we sort of slump down, sag in our seats. Every journey with the Lord starts with an uplift a moment of inspiration. We are carried far by that uplift. In the calendar, we're carried all the way to Shavuot by the uplift of Passover. It's like Passover gives us the energy we need to start climbing, and so we climb. A child is given a lot of energy, aren't they? Shavuot is what we find at the top, this moment of adolescence, the the mountaintop experience for us, but There we are standing at the top, and it's just at that moment that God withdraws that extra energy of childhood, and he says, okay, now come down, come down on your own. And so this is his design, and it it feels different all of a sudden, and our legs feel wobbly under us, and we're kind of looking down and saying, well, if I take that path, what if it leads to a cliff, and I fall off, and what if I take that path, (laughs) and it leads to a cliff? And it's hard to see, and we're feeling more responsibility for the choices that we're making. And it's a little scary. Um, And we're exhausted already. And we, there's so much further to go. And so all of that just kind of comes upon us. And suddenly we're in a bit of a battleground. And it's chiefly an emotional battleground at this point. Maybe not especially up here in the head, more here in the heart. 
And, you know, for one thing, this is something that couples experience when that initial romance fades because it's designed to fade. All this, all this feeling of, well, I've come far and there's a lot further to go and am I up for it? And so we actually experience this moment on many levels and in many ways in life. So understand that in the calendar, we're now entering into one of these middle periods that's a bit of a slog. We're starting to sense it in the Torah portions now, this stumbling that, that happens with this emotional state. We're literally approaching the summer solstice in a couple of weeks, which is a kind of midpoint on the bright side of the year, right? Those six months that are the bright side of the year. And not long after the summer solstice, we come to another kind of midpoint in the spiritual journey, the three weeks. Now, if we say that our first journey in the year is actually seven months and not six months, so if we're including months one all the way through seven, our midpoint is not quite the summer solstice, which is the midpoint of those six months. We have to push, push forward a couple of weeks. Um, and we end up where? If that first journey is seven months, what is the actual midpoint? It's very close to the 17th of Tammuz, which is the beginning of the three weeks, which is the most difficult period in the whole calendar. This three weeks of mourning includes the ninth of Av, finishes the three weeks. The middle is tough, and that's true in the calendar, as it's true everywhere. So I'd like to read now a little prose poem written by Rabbi Svi Freeman that includes the idea of this difficult middle period. So it's a quick poem, and in it, Rabbi Freeman quickly lays out a pattern in the universe in just a few words. And so listen for what comes in the middle of that pattern. So the poem is called The Dream. You start with a dream. The dream becomes a plan. The plan becomes a lot of dirty work. The dirty work becomes a house. If you are successful, it is the house of your dreams. Dream, plan, dirty work, success. Why is this fundamental story, sorry, why is this the fundamental story of all human endeavor? Because it is the story of the universe. Those who can feel the dream, those who can read the plan, they see we are now at the finishing touches. And that's the end of the poem. And so, I really like this poem. It's just a few sentences, but it captures a lot. And he says, you know, he has this pattern here. Dream, plan, dirty work, success. And so he's saying that is the pattern of the whole universe. And it speaks to being elevated at the beginning with the dream, the plan. And then it becomes what he calls dirty work. And the dirty work leads to the goal eventually, which is the building of the house, which hopefully resembles the plan, right? Hopefully you didn't get off track in the building process. Hopefully it's the, the house of your dreams. He's also adding in here that if you can feel this pattern, if you can sense that this is the heartbeat of the universe, then 
then you know that the time is late in the story. And, um, but anyway, that's a topic for another time. But very quickly, he puts many ideas there in this little poem. So we actually have two middle points like this in the yearly calendar. One near the three weeks that follows the summer solstice, and one a couple of weeks after the winter solstice. So I want to just dip into that idea briefly now, partly because I find it fascinating, but also because it helps give a fundamental structure to approaching the yearly calendar. So as I was thinking about this topic of this difficult middle phase, I began to see better, better than ever, what the sages mean when they say, the end is enwedged in the beginning, right? And the beginning is enwedged in the end, right? It's, it's a picture like this, the, the beginning and the ending, like a circle where the two come together. And um, just keep that idea in mind that the beginning and the end overlap. So we have two journeys in the year and they're both seven months. So you say, well, we only have 12 months. And how do we have two seven-month journeys in the year? Well, we have to count the first month twice, and we have to count the seventh month twice. So the first journey is months one through the end of seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's the first journey. The second journey in the year begins again with the seventh month at Rosh Hashanah, so we're counting Rosh Hashanah twice, in a way. And so that one is 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and we go one more to Nisan, include Nisan in the second journey. And so we've counted those two months 12, or sorry, we've counted those two months twice, which gives us 14 steps total. And um, the beginning the beginnings and the ends overlap. And so we have these two journeys. And by the way, in the middle of the second seven-month journey, we have another fast day, and that's the 10th of Tevet. comes near to the middle of the second seven-month journey. It's just tough to be in that middle, right? I think if you're a middle child, you, you might say the same thing. Now, we often look to the natural and the agricultural calendars for help understanding the spiritual calendar. And um, what do we find agriculturally going on in the first and the seventh months? Well, these are both big harvest times. The beginning of the grain harvest in the first month and the grapes in the, okay, so the, it's barley, right? And it's beginning the grain harvest over there in the first month. The seventh month is grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. Some of the most important foods that are grown in Israel. So harvest is the collecting of seeds, essentially. And so whether those seeds are naked seeds, like in the grain, or flesh-covered seeds with the fruits. So do we think of the harvest as the beginning or as the end? Well, it's both, really. Mostly we think of a harvest as the end, but because you're, you're cutting the mature plant, finally, and you're harvesting those seeds and you're eating them, and so that feels like the end of a journey. But 
You also set aside some of those seeds, if you're a farmer, for planting the next crop. And so what you are holding in your hands with those seeds is the beginning of the next journey. They overlap. And we can almost say that the end and the beginning are the same thing. Well, let's turn now to some practical suggestions for how we deal with the difficult middle phase of a journey. I'm sure you can all come up with, you know, many suggestions of your own. What do you do when you kind of hit that wall? When the journey ahead seems impossible and you're already feeling tired? So let me give you just a few suggestions here of my own. First, understand that the dirty work is part of the pattern of God's yearly curriculum for us. It's built in. So don't panic. When the path ahead suddenly seems overwhelming, it's part of what God has designed into the calendar. And so it helps us to have a familiarity with the calendar and to study it, to know when that comes upon you, it's not a failing of yours necessarily. It's just what is meant to be. Second, uh, make a special effort now to reaffirm your commitment to whatever the path is that God has chosen for you. Simply be dogmatic to stay on that path. Become a little bit nutty about staying on that path. You know, every day we experience the same pattern of salvation. And, you know, there's a middle point to the day. And what we speak out every day to strengthen us in the journey of that day is, the, is Shema Israel. The Shema is how we reaffirm our chosen path. And as we say the Shema, we read the commands to keep God's ways on our heart and to talk of them when we sit in our houses, when we walk on the way, when we lie down and when we rise up. It sounds a little nutty, really, to the world, I would think. At least, boy, don't you have anything else to talk about? <laughs> Maybe they would say. But that kind of single-mindedness for the truth and for the path of life is what it looks like to press in in faith. Well, third, don't be too concerned with what's down the road. Just focus on the next step. The next step is doable. The next million steps is overwhelming and even paralyzing. So just look at the next step ahead. Fourth, look for the joy in the journey at this point. There's always joy, and we need to cling to that joy as we're walking always. Fifth, pay attention to what the difficulty of the journey is bringing out of you that needs to be corrected. So God is in the process of bringing into the light what needs to see the sun. The goal of this first seventh month journey is repentance, right? It leads to the month of Elul, which is the month of repentance, and to the 10 days of awe at the beginning of the seventh month. The unmasking of the sin that remains in us is what all of this great light of the summer is about. That illuminating of the darkness is a critical step in humbling us and in our reaching out to him for help in his eventual pouring out of his grace on us, his pitying us, his deeper work in us. Understand that God is 
the prime mover in bringing correction, but we need to pay attention as he shines the light of truth on what still needs correcting in us, right? God saves by pouring out his grace on us, but our part is particularly the repentance, right? So this is, this is God's work of salvation in us, but we have a role to play. And a part of that is to say, I'm paying attention. I'm seeing what you're bringing out of me as you're pushing, as you're squeezing. And I don't like that. And I can't accept that. And I know that that's not your plan for me. I repent of that, right? That's, that's the biggest part of what we're doing in this whole process, at least in this time. And, um, and it helps us to look at the stumbles in a different way as really just more steps forward, more steps forward because, oh, okay, well, God was, God is supposed to be showing me what I need to repent of. And so, yes, I stumbled. And in this pushing, in this pressing, this came out of me. But praise the Lord, that's him showing me. That's actually a step forward and not a step backward, though it may feel like a step backward. It's a very different perspective. And it's a positive perspective. So after these more general discussions about how this portion fits into the bigger picture and what it's speaking to us in general, let's spend a little time now with a couple of specific topics from the portion, starting with the famous inverted letter nuns that separate the last two verses of chapter 10 from the rest of the text. Now, we already talked about this almost like the summit that that we have been coming to Um, But let's look at it from a slightly different angle here. So in handwritten Torah scrolls, there are two backward letter nuns that mysteriously come before and after the verses that read, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So many reasons are given for what these inverted nuns are doing here. Let me throw another one into the mix here, and it comes out of our discussion about cultivating humility, especially in this season. So the nun is said to be a bent-over person, a person who is humble, right? Humility, our key word here. It's the letter of faithful humility, so what does it mean then to have a backward nun? What, what's, what is the backwardness of humility or the opposite of humility maybe? Let me suggest that an inverted nun is a kind of chutzpah, a boldness, a standing up. It's a chutzpah that has at its um, root humility, right? The backward nun is made from a nun, right? And real chutzpah begins with humility. When we are humble, God lifts us up. When we are humble, there's a purity in our thoughts and words that allows us to claim authority that we couldn't otherwise because our motives are clean. Again, the point here is that humility becomes the basis for a kosher chutzpah. And in that kosher boldness, there's a great power. You know, Yeshua is called the lamb, but he's also called the lion. And I think that lion is probably more 
a more essential description of him than the lamb. There is a power in boldness, and there's a, there's a power in worldly boldness that's not founded on humility, but that kind of chutzpah leads to death. There's also power in a godly boldness that starts with humility, and that chutzpah leads to life. So what does this idea have to do with these two verses, right? This idea of of a kosher chutzpah that's based on humility. Well, first of all, these words are being spoken by Moses. And it's said of Moses that he was the most humble of all men. In fact, we read that in this Torah portion, I'm pretty sure. And what is Moses, this most humble of all men, saying? Well, what he's saying takes some chutzpah. He's daring to send forth the God of the universe to deal with his enemies, who are also Israel's enemies. And he's then inviting God to return, to rejoin the people. So here's a tiny man, a human being, addressing the Creator. His words are not a request like, please, Lord, could you go out and scatter your enemies? Listen again to the boldness of the verses. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So there's no condemnation here in the Torah for Moses speaking this way to God. On the contrary, we recite these verses when the ark is opened during a Torah service. Moses can speak this way because we know that beneath the words is a pure heart, a humble heart. So there's a a close connection between humility and boldness. We are meant to be a bold people, a people who stands up to claim the vast authority God has given us. But that boldness and that claim of authority must rest on the foundation of humility. Right? We're meant to wield a lot of power, um, but if not built on a humble foundation, it's just going to get us into trouble. The last specific topic we have uh, time for today is the first topic in the portion. Go all the way back to the beginning, the lighting of the menorah. The topic that provides the name for this portion when you cause the lights to go up is one translation. There's an important principle that is starting here with the lighting of the tabernacle menorah. There's a kindling of a kind of light here that is more than meets the eye. Flames give light, and light is truth. Light defeats evil because evil requires darkness, the cover of lies. When evil is exposed by the truth, it loses its appeal. It becomes unattractive because it's obvious that it leads to death. And hopefully our society is seeing these days and the discussion that's out there today that's dominating the discussion that, you know, evil leads to death. You know, hopefully that's being seen for what it is, as unattractive as what it really is. Well, light can come from one of two places. It can come from above or below. In the physical world, the light from above 
comes from the sun, moon, and stars. And so that's picturing something for us in the spiritual realm. This is light that God has made for us, right? God creates the sun and the moon and the stars, and he gives us that light. And the light from below is light that mankind usually has a hand in producing the light from a candle or a fire in a fireplace or a menorah, light that often comes from mankind growing something like an olive and pressing it to extract the oil, which contains a lot of energy in it, a lot of light in it, we could say. God wants us to grow up to be able to reflect his light, the reflection from below of his light that comes from above and is stored in different places in different ways down here. The light from above is used to grow the olive below. And so we can say that God is hiding that light inside the physical olive. And then he says, okay, that light started with me, but it's down there with you now. Liberate it. You make light now like I make light, right? We can't necessarily make light ourselves. But if he puts it here for us to have a hand in bringing forth, well, that's, that's God giving us the light to work with in a way. Well, here in our portion, Israel is still very early in learning how to reflect God's light. It's really something that we talked about a lot in the winter, this reflecting of the light. But here we're seeing a very early uh, manifestation of this with the menorah. God has designed a teaching tool for us. He's got to teach us this process first. And that is, actually, the process he's teaching us is how to bring forth light. So when you think about the menorah, think there is God's teaching tool, and he's showing me how to bring forth light, how to reflect his light. He instructs us where to put the menorah, how to arrange the lamps, how we need to daily tend to it. And after all that teaching, at a certain point in time, he says, all right, now you light it, right? You have to practice this again. It's God in a teaching role here. So later, when we have grown up, right, when we're no longer directly under the tutelage of a teacher, we use our own initiative to craft and light a menorah without God directing us to do so, without his direct leading And amazingly, we actually see this in the calendar, almost exactly six months opposite the reading of this portion. Opposite us now on the calendar is what? It's Hanukkah. Hanukkah is mankind taking what God has taught us and bringing forth the light from below. Taking the design of the menorah and making it our own, augmenting God's design, right? We add a couple of lights to it. And we use our own free will to do that, and our own life experience to do that, right? This whole story of Hanukkah. We take the lesson and we apply it. God showed us how to do it. Over here now, we're going to do it ourselves. And In the darkness of midwinter, we light the menorahs that we designed according to God's pattern, and we put them in our windows for the world to see. We burn the oil God has hidden in the olive to make light. 
It's absolutely breathtaking, really. There's just no detail of the calendar, for example, that doesn't align with some other one, doesn't illuminate another part. Well, one last point here. Um, This section about the lighting of the menorah is only given a few verses in the portion. We only have a little bit about the menorah here. But among these verses is a repetition of the detail that the menorah is hammered work. We're told, and this was the workmanship of the menorah, hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers, it was hammered work, according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the menorah. So why this emphasis here? We only have a few verses here for it, but it's, it's mentioning this hammering twice. I think it's partly to say that this work of reflecting God's light does not come easily. The final form of the menorah might be graceful and beautiful and a natural form, but not all that is smooth and natural starts that way. Certainly, nothing in life that is worth anything starts out fully formed and sleek and beautiful. It has to grow, and growing is tough. It's tough business. This menorah that is made to resemble an almond tree in a way with a trunk and branches, buds, and flowers that yield light, it has to grow. Even in its process of being made, it has to grow. So catch this. The menorah has to start out as a solid lump of gold, relatively small in, in, in proportion to the finished product, and it has to be hammered and hammered. And over time, and with many blows, the menorah grows as a branch forms and another branch to balance the first and then more branches and buds and flowers bloom. And so that menorah has to go through a growth process and it involves the hammer. Learning to reflect his light takes time and includes the blows of the smith with a capital S and his hammer. And it's a process of growing into the balanced and natural shape of the menorah. We are the menorah. And we are given a difficult growing process. But the end result is smooth and natural and beautiful and bright. And there's no one who exemplifies this whole teaching of the menorah better than Yeshua. Who is more balanced than Yeshua? Who gives more light than Yeshua? Who teaches us more about reflecting God's light than Yeshua? And who suffered more severe blows than Yeshua? It's not that there haven't been many people in the world who have suffered terrible blows, God forbid, but none of them were innocent like him, and none of them were filled with love like he was for those who were persecuting him. Why did Yeshua have to suffer like that? Was it that he needed to grow into the form of the menorah, even Yeshua? I think the answer is yes. There was no other way to bring forth the fullness of his light than for him to give everything he had to give. Yeshua's example teaches us that you can't hold back and still give forth the fullness of your light. Let me say that again. Yeshua's example teaches us that you can't 
hold back and still give forth the fullness of your light. It wasn't possible for Yeshua to hold back and bring forth the fullness of his light. And it's not possible for us to do that either. In order to shine with all the brilliance God has put into us, we have to give everything like he did. And we trust God to take that offering and make it a vast beacon of light like Yeshua's to illuminate the darkness of the world around us. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. There's a link to an outline below. May God bless us to be a people who take much joy in the climb and also in the descent. But may our descent be one of humbling ourselves and not an uncontrolled falling. May we be a people who come to the difficult parts of the journey with knowledge of what's coming and with the faith to keep moving forward one step at a time. May we be a people with the holy chutzpah that grows out of humility. And may we grow into a people who take his light from above and reflect it below into a dark world as we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.